Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. It's a great pleasure to have you with us for another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great uh, discussion ahead with Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. Chris Bloomstrand couldn't be with us this week. I'll just mention at the outset that we've been getting some wonderful feedback from our listeners, including uh, questions and uh, some prompts for uh, topics that we could discuss. And that's super helpful to us. So thank you. Uh, to those who have sent in uh, their thoughts and questions. And I definitely encourage uh, that going forward. Uh, it's something we we love to do is just discuss things that are on people's minds uh, right now. And, uh, you know, whether that's evergreen or more timely, uh, just keep it coming either to myself or Phil or Elliot or Chris, and uh, we'll be happy to uh, to address them. So with that, I'm going to go to uh, Phil first, and then Elliot, uh, each of uh, the guys actually will uh, be addressing a listener question. Uh, so let's uh, get going. Phil, over to you. Great. Thanks, John. So I'll, I'll jump right into a question and just read it verbatim because I thought it was very uh, well said and, and very much worth clarifying. So it says, Phil, a question for you that might be good for the podcast. You mentioned on the last podcast that you need to have a board level knowledge of a company. What does that mean? If you don't think it's good for the pot, I'd just love to know for my own use. I, my insecurity around whether I have that board level knowledge, I think, infects and limits my action on a variety of fronts. So I think the, the first thing to point out is that it's a somewhat arbitrary line that I'm drawing. And, and the questioner is exactly right, that it can definitely restrict and limit your actions to the point that you could be paralyzed by, by indecision. So I don't think it it needs to be the same hurdle for everybody, and I don't think it's a bright line test by any stretch of the imagination. But I think this just, for me, it, it kind of drops me back to the point of I want to always think about the business first, not the security first. And as thinking about the business first, I want to know as much about it as I reasonably can. Now, from an investment perspective, it really does often, almost always, boil down to getting the big two or three things right. But I will say that there are many, many occasions where I think we've had the big two or three things right. And then as we keep peeling back the onion and really get to know the company, we find just seven or eight or nine or 10 things that are really worrisome and really troubling. And any one of them might not be enough to disqualify the, uh, the investment right out of the gates. But when you find that many little things wrong, um, it generally, you know, adheres to the theory that there's not just one cockroach in the kitchen. So when I talk about having board level knowledge, it's really just thinking about the company holistically and trying to figure out what its weaknesses are, what the people are really like inside, what the executives would really have to say if you gave them some truth serum or a couple of strong drinks and really got them to open up about what the company was good at, where it was weak, what the opportunities look like in the future, where their competitors were really gaining on them, that sort of thing. Um, so I think, again, there, there's, there's plenty of arbitrary, uh, there's, there's a lot of arbitrary nature in this, in this distinction, but I, I just always imagine that if I can't 
picture myself going into the next board meeting, you know, the next day or the next week and sitting down and asking really thoughtful, penetrating questions that are right up to speed with the absolute best person on the board, then that means I just haven't done enough homework yet. I haven't really thought through the business enough. And again, this just fits my style. It fits my personality. You know, I'm generally looking to make two or three, maybe four or five at the very most new investments a year because we're only going to own eight or 10 or 12 at a given time. So I, you know, I'm not trying to turn things over too quickly so I, I can take the time to sit back and think through them. But generally, if I haven't thought through them enough and if I don't have that, that what I consider board level uh, familiarity with all the ins and outs of the business, it just means that I'm not done with my process yet. I'm just not ready to pull the trigger. So, you know, that runs all sorts of other risks. You know, do I... Do I suck my thumb for too long and wait and the opportunity passes me by? It happens all the time. Um, you know, do I kind of over start overthinking things and uh, and miss out on, you know, what, what should be a relatively simple thesis? You know, okay, the business is great. The, the industry is presenting a huge tailwind. And, you know, sure, the, the CEO is a scumbag or something like that. But I think in general, the rule for me has always saved me so much trouble. And that's really kind of the other tenant of the process is I'm not trying to hit the biggest home runs. I'm trying to avoid the biggest mistakes. And so by thinking about the business first and by thinking, by by doing enough work and enough thinking to, to get to a board level kind of knowledge of the company, it just sort of helps me avoid, avoid those mistakes more frequently. So again, I hope it doesn't come across as black and white or, you know, too arrogant. I certainly in practice, in practicality, I don't know as much as any given director in almost all the companies uh, that I own, uh, you know, I, I aspire to, but every time I do talk to a real director or, and I'm certainly never going to know as much as a, you know, senior executive at the company who's doing it every day. And so every time I do talk to those people in real life, I almost always end up learning quite a bit. So, um, but it's just, that's the, that's the test and the, the aspiration for my end. So John Elliott, I don't know if, the, if that makes sense to you guys, if you want to chime in or, or clarify any further. Yeah, no, I think that's really good perspective. And man, did I really take to that quote from you? I thought it was fantastic. I've always tried to think about, you know, what, how I would describe uh, that moment when I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. Um, the one thing I struggle with a little bit is we don't exactly have the same level of information the board would have access to in certain cases. And sure. there are certain companies where that would be. I mean, obviously, extremely helpful, almost deterministic. So we have to take one step back and think about how we're making decisions in a far more uncertain world than someone in a board role would. And I'm not necessarily, I'm, I'm not at all talking about information like what's the next quarterly report going to be like, but like I'd been engaging with PayPal's IR and telling them, why don't you guys disclose a little information on like, what each decile of engagement looks like. Like if we had a better picture of what your most engaged deciles of customers look like, we'd have an idea of what, you know, in a more aspirational sense, engagement could look like down the line for your core customer. And we'd be able to think about value a little differently. And they're like, you know, competitive reasons, we don't really want to do it. But that sort of information and knowledge that you could get um, could be extremely helpful. So while we don't have that, I mean, still, I, I, I totally agree. Like getting to know how the company works with each stakeholder, getting like really deep familiarity uh, with, you know, what uh, what these stakeholders say about the company itself and how they feel about it um, and what sort of sentiments arise from it. Um, you know, you want to approach it to to that degree of depth or at least 
the general you, like that's the way all of us invest. Um, I, I know I'm speaking a little bit for Chris as well, but all of us do, uh, or at least aspire to do deep work and get to know these companies intimately and not necessarily like find something appealing and make a decision right away. So um, that would be my one caveat. Like we don't exactly have the same like data panel the board would have, but we want that level of intimacy and knowledge. Yeah, so I think that's uh, a great clarification because I think it points out how I'm not uh, communicating the message well. I think my point would be the fact that you've done enough thinking and and research into it to ask the question. And then if you were to get the answer or if you were to be in a board meeting and someone were to present that to you, that information to you in a board deck, you know, you have already thought through the implications of it. So you could digest that information immediately. I think a lot of traders and investors w- would not even have that thought process. And then if that information were presented to them in a board meeting, it would be the first time it had ever crossed their mind. So that that's, you're coming at it from the exact same place that I am. So that's a, that's a good example of it, I think. Yeah, that's a really helpful qualification. I, I'd say for me, it does tie in with the concept of circle of competence. It's, yeah. um, you know, basically, is this truly within your circle? And, you know, going back to what you just mentioned, Phil, about being able to ask intelligent questions, not necessarily having all the answers uh, right away, but just kind of, um, you know, knowing what the value drivers are. Um, and, you know, another way that I like to look at it is, would I feel qualified to make a bid for the entire business? And would right. I feel um, in a good spot to actually conduct due diligence on this business if I wanted to buy the whole business? You know, do I know what questions to ask to really identify the key long-term value drivers here? Um, so yeah. that's kind of how I think about it. Um, you know, one, um, maybe question for both of you, just to, to sort of, uh, throw a, a little bit of a wrench in here when you talk about, uh, the board level kind of perspective, I sometimes feel like at certain inflection points in industries, the board may not necessarily see the forest for the trees, if you will, or may not appreciate the outside, um, you know, disruption enough. You know, you think about traditional automakers and electrification. You think about traditional retail and e-commerce. Um, so just maybe to complement that insider view with kind of a also an outsider view. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And, um, you know, it gets to a, a little bit of a different question and problem, I think, which is that I think if you talk to anybody that's had board experience or interactions with the board, you know, it's it can get a little discouraging. There's some great directors out there. There's some really thoughtful people that put a lot of heart and time and soul and effort into serving on boards. But there's a lot of board members that are also there to kind of check the box and collect the check. And there's not much investment in any sense of the word in the success of the company. And so there's a lot of directors that that don't do this kind of work and aren't really, you know, qualified to ask those kinds of questions either. So that's, that's a little um, discouraging. I, I do really like the framework, though. You know, if I were presenting a bid for the whole company, what would I need to ask? And am I qualified to do so? Um, and likewise, paired with the, you know, of course, the circle of competence uh, angle of things, because there are, Lord knows, there are plenty of companies, you know. I was thinking the other day about, Pfizer, when the, uh, you know, the vaccine trials came out or Moderna for that matter. And, you know, 
give people like Scott Gottlieb, the former commissioner of the FDA on that board at Pfizer, um, you know, I could, I could contribute in other areas maybe. Uh, but as it pertains to the single most important thing to that company right now, and frankly, to the rest of the world, I'm certainly not going to have anything to add. So I'd be a pretty useless director in that, in that perspective. I wouldn't know what to ask and it just wouldn't be helpful. So I think that points out why you need to have a balance of, uh, people on, on the board and you have to have people that are willing to learn and get up to speed. Because I think if I spend enough time around people like Scott Gottlieb, I could at least get smart enough to start figuring out what types of questions to ask, even if I didn't have the deep subject matter expertise. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer there, Phil. I think that's incredibly relevant. It's hard. Uh, there, there are some companies that you look at and you think right away, like, oh, these board members are definitely there uh, to just collect their check and I can't imagine they have a meeting. I mean, it touches on a lot of what you've brought up topically uh, in terms of governance. And it makes me think, I mean, we were talking last week about Twitter on Stockcom, but Twitter on the board is an interesting example where that was one of the biggest targets of the activists. And they basically have a kind of new board in a lot of ways. And shortly after, I think, uh, one of their first meetings, Jack Dorsey went to start an internal periscope and he did it to the world in general. And he was one sentence into saying to his team um, that the board is asking to speak with him more regularly. So he's speaking with the board far more often than he had in the past. And then he's like, oh, this is live and shut it off. Um, hmm. But so it is interesting. I mean, there are two kinds of boards, right? Uh, I mean, I'm obviously uh, speaking kind of uh, broadly here, but there, there are engaged boards and there are boards that, that just aren't. Um, so hopefully at the end of the day, like when we look at what companies we want to be interested in, we're looking at those that have um, engaged boards. I guess the second problem is like when you think about a company like Pinterest and they had some cultural issues that arose during the spring and summer months, um, I, their board, I don't know if the problem, the problems weren't on the dimension of engaged versus disengaged. It was more so that um, the board existed to kind of uh, say yes to the CEO. And so you could be very engaged, but just say yes to everything because you want to be around a certain personality. Um, and that's got its own drawbacks. Um, so I know we're, I'm, I'm kind of like drifting from our starting point, but I think those things matter a lot. And I, I feel like they should be kind of part of our analysis. And we obviously want to be the informed kind of board member that are uh, somewhat active. Yeah, no, fair enough. So, all right. Well, thanks. I appreciate the the commentary and feedback on that and uh, appreciate the, the question coming in for sure. And hopefully we uh, added some good clarification to that without going off on too many tangents, for, particularly from my end. So thank you again for the, the question that came in there. And then moving forward to this week, uh, something I wanted to touch on real briefly was a question I actually got separately. What didn't pertain directly to the podcast and didn't come in through the podcast, but uh, I was talking to somebody uh, who was quite a bit younger and new to the world of investing. And his comment or question to me was basically, you know, I find all my ideas on social media. Uh, why doesn't everybody do that? And so he started kind of grilling me about where I find ideas and, and kind of dismissing it as a waste of time because he was kind of subscribing to this um, wisdom of the crowd style approach, I suppose, which is that, you know, you should just go looking for what has the most buzz out there amongst really smart people. And that's the only place you need to look. And you just buy some of those and you're off and running. 
And you know, my response to him was that, look, I think everybody should design their own process and, and make it fit to their own intellectual interests, to their own abilities and capacities and their time horizon and their capital and all that good stuff. So I, I'm not dismissive of it entirely as a as a process for certain kinds of people. But you know, I pointed out to him, I, I could probably make a 100-page presentation about all the ideas and pitches that I've received and, and even read voluntarily you know, over the last 15 years or so from people that are really bright. I mean, people by all accounts that have you know, super high IQs, big net worths, long track records, everything. And, you know, pitches that were on paper, very appealing and very attractive. But my problem with it always is that the pitch itself is what becomes the idea. So the idea itself kind of gets lost. And so if the pitch is really compelling and sexy and well-presented and funny and persuasive, it just sort of takes over. And so I think it becomes more an issue about psychology and filtering than it does about business and investing. And so it gets back to my first and foremost filter, which is business first or security first. So my response to this person who's asking me this question was, look, if you're trying to find stocks that are going to go up for the next week or month, I think you're really onto something. I think you may have a problem competing against the superpowered quants and AIs that are um, going to be doing this game even better than you are and, and better than you ever could. Um, because they're monitoring all that kind of stuff and getting out in front of it. And so I think you're going to be left with a lot more noise than you are signal. But look, if your game is a security first game and you're trying to pick stocks that are going to go up, you almost by definition need to take the temperature of the crowds on a very frequent basis and try to ride that wave. Likewise, if you're trying to do things that are, you know, again, a little more security first, a little shorter term in nature, a little more divorced from the business, you know, re resorting to other people's analysis as your primary input could make some sense. I don't think it's a great source uh, personally, um, but I, mean, I certainly know of at least two funds that I could point to run by really thoughtful, intelligent people where they basically just scrape 13 Fs. Um, they, they go find, you know, I don't know how many investors they probably put in that universe, but it's probably a few dozen investors that they know fund managers that they know well enough to think highly of. And so then they just go out and scrape their 13F data and they kind of write their own algorithm for what it would mean in terms of a new position sized as a certain percentage of the portfolio, et cetera. And if it meets those criteria, it goes in their own portfolio. And that's really it. Um, and so look, I'm not, I, that could totally work. But again, I think you just have to be, this goes back to what we were talking to last week. You can do that. You just have to be very clear and very honest with yourself about what you're doing. You know, and again, I go... Charlie Munger's talked about this quite a bit. Monish Pabrai's made quite a bit of it, you know, in terms of this concept of cloning. I, I love the idea of cloning. If you can get there yourself, the problem with it, at least for me, has always been, if I think really highly of a person, highly enough that I would consider cloning their ideas, it makes me lazy. So instead of doing my own work and doing my own, following my own process, I tend to just take shortcuts. So then now the error is compounded because not only could the original person be wrong, but if that original person turns out to be wrong, I'm going to be the last to know. I'm going to have my own uncertainties built into it. I'm not going to know what to do. I'm going to feel kind of paralyzed by indecision because I'll know that I haven't done the work. Um, so for me, it's just not a really effective way to go about doing things. I love to go read, you know, things that disagree. So I love to go crowdsourcing ideas. If I could, if I own something and I could go find somebody that's written up a short 
on it, um, you know, wherever that may be out in the internet or in a value investors club or anything like that. I, that's great because then I can, you know, it forces me to think about what somebody else would be considering and to take the other side of it. Um, but in terms of as the primary filter for me, never. And, um, you know, really would only bring it in as either a contrarian thing at the end. I mean, one thing I will say, I think that's, that's actually quite valuable is looking at really old write-ups. So if you want to go, if somebody has a pitch for you on a certain company or industry and you can find something that's five or 10 years old, 20 years old, I mean, I think that can add some really histor- good historical perspective. And I think it can show you um, how difficult it is to actually link that process of writing a compelling pitch and actually making money. Uh, but I do think that's a worthwhile exercise to go back and find things. But in terms of just trolling day to day to find um, ideas that are, you know, quote unquote, crowdsourced, you know, via social media or message boards or whatever, it just doesn't hasn't worked well for me. But I want to throw it out for you guys, because I know that you guys probably have a little bit different perspective on it. John, I know you've written about this extensively and you know far more people um, than I do. So curious for your thoughts. Yeah, I guess. I want to hit it first. Yeah, I, I guess I will since Phil called me out here. Um, well, I didn't mean to call you. No, out. No. Just, you're yeah. probably the uh, more informed of the. No, of that's the tools, fine. That's Thanks. Sure. Um, and I, I, I'll disclose. I am supposed to be working on a second edition of my book, but that's a whole another <laughs> sore subject. Um, yeah, I would say. Um, it's not definitely not my approach to go on um, social media and look for ideas. Um, I feel like what you know the consensus there, you're just that's that's in the price, right? It's kind of you're not gonna find a, a contrarian idea, an idea where you really have an edge right off the bat by just looking at social media. And, um, you know, there's also the danger of just buying into stories or really good write-ups, as you said, Phil. Um, people are susceptible to that. You know, you somebody wrote up 100 pages. Oh, it must be good. And it has tons of charts. So, you know, you feel immediately like, well, this is it. Um, but you're not really looking at it the way you should be, which is, I'm buying a business. How do I think about it? How would I value it? And, um, you know, how do you develop conviction if you're just blindly following somebody? You know, stocks do not go straight up. And when that, you know, 10, 20, 30% dip comes, what do you do then? You know, you're you're waiting 90 days between 13 Fs. They're filed with a 45-day delay. And um, if... during that period when no new 13Fs are being released, the stock is off a whole bunch. What then? You know, you don't know what that guru is doing, whether, you know, that guru is selling that day or buying more. And uh, if you don't have your own thesis, it just becomes uh, really difficult and you end up selling at the worst uh, points in time. Um, And then, Phil, also to your point about um, really trying to develop some sort of an edge and knowing how you can actually be on the winning side, you know, kind of that poker analogy, who's the patsy at the table. Um, I, I hear of folks who do some kind of quantitative approach as individuals sitting at home and running, 
you know, screens on Yahoo Finance or some, you know, stuff like that. And you're you're going into a market potentially or, or an approach, a strategy where you're competing against Renaissance Technologies or DE Shaw. It's right. like bringing a knife to a gunfight. I mean, you're probably not uh, in the right place there. Um, you know, um, that said, I'm not averse to looking at 13Fs and, and finding others' ideas because there are no extra points for originality necessarily. It really is just about being right and uh, having uh, it work out over time. So it's got to be a balanced approach. But, you know, I, I like having a very broad funnel. Um, so I'll look at everything, um, but I'll look through everything through my own lens and put it through my own process. And if it comes out on the other end, great. Uh, but that's pretty rare. Well, that's super well said. I should have just skipped all of my rambling and gone to you because I knew you'd nail that one right on the head. So uh, appreciate it. That, that's exceptionally well done. And, and another thing I should add just to clarify about my own comments was I, I'm at least as susceptible to believing a pitch that's good from a person who's good, even if the idea itself is garbage, as I am to dismissing a good idea just because I think the person is a bozo. So to your point, I love having a wide funnel. I don't really care where an idea comes in. And so what I will do as hard as I possibly can, I mean, it takes a little bit of you know, closing your eyes, so to speak, but I, I just keep a running list of everything I want to look at. I have a notebook and I have every notebook going back to 2006. Um, and so when, it, when, an, when an idea crosses the transom, whether it's someone verbally mentioning it to me, something I see on the internet, wherever it is, the, the newspaper often, you know, somebody else's portfolio, 13F, whatever the case may be, I just write it down. And if there's a salient fact or two, I will write down that literally one sentence, two sentences, that's it. But I do not want the pitch itself to enter the process again until the very end. And once I've done my own work and my own thinking about it, then maybe I'll circle back to the actual pitch itself, hopefully after you know, dozens and hundreds of hours at the very minimum um, of my own work. I'll go back and revisit the original pitch or thesis to see if I still agree or disagree, find any holes in their thinking, et cetera. So Elliot, what, what about you? Yeah, you guys hit so many of the key points. Like, I love a lot of the general ideas. I used the phrase last week, and I, I'll, I'll reiterate again. Um, when you get an idea from someone else, you have to make it your own before it's investable to you. And so much of investing is about doing the work to have conviction. When you buy a stock, you're tossing a coin. It could go down before it goes up. And, you know, I mean, the odds are basically 50-50 that it's going to go down before it goes up. And, um, you know, one question I like asking myself when I approach these kinds of things is, would I be a seller if it went down 20% before I ever uh, experienced positivity in it? Um, and if I feel there's the slightest inclination that, yes, in fact, I would be, um, then it's not an idea for me. Um, so that's one, one of the things I try to use in, in terms of, like, grasping it. Um, I, I feel like... I, uh, I'm very uh, open to the idea that we should have a really wide funnel. I don't think idea generation is any one thing. It's being an interested person. And part of an interested per being an interested person, you know, you find a lot of different things that uh, are interesting. And one of those is looking at what other smart investors are doing. 
So I do find it very helpful to know what other investors are doing. I actually recently, I think for the first time, I made an idea, uh, an investment in a company I had never heard of until I saw someone else very smart having invested in it. So I'll save the exact what uh, for another time. But that that did happen. And I thought it was really helpful. I never would have known about this company yet, though I'm sure I would I will know it in five years nonetheless. So, so I do think there are a lot of good things to come. Now, in terms of using show, social media to tap into ideas, um, I think it's good. There are some great people out there. You can get interesting ideas. I don't think the best ideas come from the volume uh, with which people are speaking about them. Those tend to be ideas that are far more ephemeral in nature, and the people that are flocking to them have ulterior motives than you know uh, sharing uh, an idea that they believe has long longer term merits. Um, there's some really good people who are worth following. When they speak about a stock, they'll speak about it with knowledge and you know, give a little more information than just the ticker. Um, so that could get you started in doing your own work. Um, but also, uh, one thing I'd add, one of the most interesting ways to source ideas online is if you ever have like, so I like to do both top down and bottoms up like idea generation processes. So every once in a while, you'll have like a broader thesis, like you know, um, maybe it's something like in March, I think uh, demand for suburban homes is going to rise. And so, you know, you might not know exactly where you want to look or for what you want to look to to invest behind the theme. Who the hell knows if you even want to invest in the theme? But throwing out the question on social media, Twitter, FinTwit in particular, like what are the best investments if you believe that suburban home demand is going to go up? Sometimes that's really helpful and really interesting. And the answers you get um, are thoughtful and different than might come to your own mind. Um, so that's one area I think, um, you know, I'd point people to as a, as a really powerful source of scraping social media, sourcing, sourcing ideas through social media. Um, but that, yeah, you, you guys nailed it. Really great answers. And, you know, manual of ideas. It's, it's all about ideas, right? Um, and you know, uh, reading re- reading smart people there—that's outstanding source of idea. The conferences, all, all that sort of stuff, it, extremely helpful. Well, Elliot, what you just said, though, I think maybe the most important point of the whole thing, which is the best way to find ideas, is to just have interest and and be interested and be curious. So I, I totally agree with that. I don't think there's one way of doing it that's perfect and you have to have as wide a funnel as you possibly can and the people that are most curious and most interested and most persistent about it are going to do the best over time i just don't see there's any other way about it yeah totally and you know one thing that's coming to my head now and i think the the phrasing and articulation of it is coming to my head now like a lot of people talk about circle of competence and making sure ideas fit within your circle of competence which is 100% true but i also think the idea um and it has to fit with your personality. Like all of this stuff, it's very personal. Like it really has to fit you. It doesn't mean that you have to be the customer for the product, but it means that like your ability to to stick with this business when it's not working has to be consistent with, you know, how you're able to handle adversity. Um, I don't know how, like any good examples that I'd put for that, but I I think that's a big part part of it. So being interested, it ties into your personality too. Like it has to fit your personality as an idea. 100%. And that's where I think you can get tripped up is if you find the idea from somebody else who's so interested in it, that they're passionate about it, they can speak very 
articulately about it and, and really convince you that it's interesting. But then if you don't have the inherent interest to follow through on it, it's going to lead to a bad result. Exactly right. And I'll just throw out um, one huge caveat that just came to mind um, that I think applies to probably 95% of things or idea pitches or theses you see out there is that they tend to focus on the fundamentals way before they ever address anything having to do with valuation. So it's really in vogue to talk about great companies and why they're going to keep growing and gain market share and all of those things. And often you don't see any link to what this business is worth. And I feel like there are a ton of investors not even doing that work anymore. Um, you know, they yeah. they they see... Shopify, great company. Zoom, great company. Let's just buy some stock. Um, okay, would you buy it at five times the price? If you wouldn't, why are you buying it at today's price? You know, what is, how are you justifying the current price? Um, and that tends to get lost because it's really not in vogue to put out a valuation-based pitch. You know, if you kind of go out with a thesis that were basically the discount to the price is your main argument, you get so ripped apart. I mean, nobody, I don't even know people who do that anymore because they're kind of seen as naive and totally behind yeah. the times. And so for me, that is just something huge that's lacking these days is just that link between, okay, it's a great business, but what is it worth? Are you getting a good deal or not? You can almost feel people, you know, dismissing or shaking their head like, oh, you agree that it's a good business, but you're worried about the valuation? Like, oh, you poor, sad, old dinosaur, you just don't get it, do you? <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, on that note, uh, let's uh, move on to our next uh Reader, I guess a listener, a question that came in for Elliot. Elliot, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, this one was from Alessandro Neglio, and it's a really good question, really interesting question that I'd love to explore with you, gentlemen. Um, the question is: I was wondering if you can discuss any time what are the red or yellow flags that you include in your checklist when you look at a new idea. Moreover, it would be great to know if you have any quantitative way to spot some of them. For example, based on my short experience and mistakes, I tend to focus on the Benish M score, receivable turnover, inventory turnover, et cetera, and looking at common size balance sheets to have a better understanding of the changes. So, you know, it's a really good question. And those are the quantitative tools that I use. And for me, you know, a pretty similar focus on that. Um, but I'm going to actually say something that's probably more uh, in the tune of the end of our last conversation. I'm far more qualitative in my focus uh, on these kinds of disqualifying factors. Um, because at the end of the day, I mean, obviously everything's tied to valuation. So if it's cheap enough, I could look past certain things or at least account for them in some way, shape or form. Uh, but obviously have to be aware of all these things. Um, and I'll share a couple examples of where I went wrong to kind of explain some of my rules. So on the first is on the quantitative side of things. Um, you know, I got burnt pretty badly in Under Armour when they uh, stuffed the channel. And I looked at the receivable turnover and I was like, oh, my God, there's something not good here. Um, but, you know, I one of the things when I 
reflected on what went wrong for me there um, was that I really felt had I done better work on the qualitative side, I would have noticed the problems that led to the quantitative issues uh, surfacing. Had I focused a little more on the lack of progress they were making in certain areas, like footwear, uh, like um, moving uh, past just athletic apparel into athleisure and it, had I focused a little more on the incentives at the top of the company, all these things I think would have led me to um, incentives, sorry, specifically they had a streak of like 20 quarters in a row of 20% quarterly, uh, uh, 20% annual growth where like their existence at that point was basically to maintain that streak and they would do everything possible. Had I thought more about these things and the problems that they could lead to, even with the quantitative awareness, like qualitatively, I would have I would have noticed the problem. So first and foremost, like do deep qualitative work. Now, one of my my, my biggest red or yellow flag, um, and it's actually a red flag, and I, I call it my uh, two strike policy. If a company says something of significance that you can hold them accountable to. And the opposite turns out to be true. And it's like, I'm talking about yes, no statements. I'm not talking about like, we aspire to 20% growth and you end up growing 17%. And I'll give you examples to make sure it's clear. Um, if a company says something that's a yes or no statement and the opposite turns out to be true twice, I sell sight unseen or I won't even bother researching it anymore. So I had a position in Fiat Chrysler for a long time. And the first problem that surfaced um, in my holding was that uh, there, there was some evidence similar to Under Armour of how uh, Fiat Chrysler had this fantastic Chrysler in particular had this fantastic streak of uh, monthly year-over-year -year sales growth. So every month they they were selling more cars than they were the prior year in that month. Um, and it turns out that in the organization they were um, using some dealers and incentives to to kind of push some sales on dealers and effectively stuffing their sales number without actually recognizing revenue for that. And then the second was Sergio Marchionne had unequivocally said, we did not, will not, never have used a defeat device uh, to get within fuel emission standards. And it turns out that they in fact did. Uh, not only did they do so, they ended up admitting as much and settling with the, uh, I think it was with the FTC for that. Um, so when that, Came, when it came out that that there was a defeat device there, I was like, I'm I'm done with this. And so the problem is, it you know, it may not be that one executive who's at fault, who said what's wrong, but it has to be something wrong with the culture where um, something that is really important, that is everything about your integrity that's put out there, is stated as uh, uh, no, and in fact is a yes, right? And so I'm very intolerant of those kinds of situations. I don't care if the stock is cheap. I don't care if everything else is going right. I just don't care. Like if you're going to lie to me like that, I can't feel comfortable knowing uh, that I know as much as I should about this business. Um, so those are two examples in two specific areas. So to me, like the real answer is I try to do deep qualitative work and I'm intolerant of people not telling me the truth. Um, and I've, you know, one other experience uh, in investing where I was told one thing by management and the other was absolutely true and management knew it or should have known it. And if they didn't know it, you know, they were effectively uh, failing at their jobs. 
Um, so I don't, I, I don't care. And I'm, I'm just completely intolerant of those kinds of situations. And I don't want to get burnt in that way. Um, I think most things I invest in, I try to think of where, you know, quantitatively it's fair. So, so unlike those situations that John was speaking to before, like I'm still very sensitive to valuation, even though I think of all us in this podcast, I, I invest on the growthier end of the spectrum. Um, so, you know, I'm GARP. I try to look for situations where I, in, in the average investment I make, in, in just about any investment I make, if I'm wrong, it's going to be because I, I, I qualitatively misunderstood the business. It is not going to be because I underwrote to uh, the wrong kind of numbers and valuation. I'm not going to get burnt on that sort of stuff. I'm going to get burnt because I didn't understand the business. I didn't understand management and their incentives. So, so that's kind of my filtering process. So I was wondering about you guys as well, what, how, how you thought about you know, your, your checklist on, on the yellow and red flag side of things. Yeah, I'm with you, Elliot. I kind of have gotten more intolerant of bad things as I go, which I guess runs the risk of missing those really juicy turnaround situations. But I think my experience and the actual data would show that most turnarounds don't turn. And to reuse the cliche from earlier, when you find one cockroach in the kitchen, that almost always means there are more problems beneath the surface that you just can't see yet. So... I'm with you. I mean, one thing I've I've definitely learned, not the hard way, but I mean, certainly somewhat painfully, was just if there's a current or recent scandal, um, it it just rarely pays. And in, in in my structure, again, so I'm only speaking for myself. Again, a long term holding in a concentrated portfolio, it just rarely pays to stick around. I'm thinking specifically, I guess, in this case of Wells Fargo, where um, unfortunately, you know, I, I was actually aware of the account scandal before it became sort of a national story. And I had sort of assumed that it really was a one-off isolated deal. And, you know, in 2014, it just didn't seem at all plausible that this would drag on for as long as it has and cost two CEOs their jobs and a big settlement recently. It was just, John Stump was just in the news the other day again. So I think that's become an area where it's, would never say never, but it would be almost, almost no chance that I would be interested um, in doing something if there was a current or very recent scandal of any of any size there. I mean, to your point about, you know, defeaters or whatever, it's just, if that's going on, God only knows what other bad stuff is going on behind the scene. Likewise, if there's just some reason to believe the leadership is rotten, if I don't like the CEO, there's just, I'm, I'm done right there. I'm just not going to do any further work. Not every CEO has to be Warren Buffett, but, you know, there's just a lot of bad actors out there and you can't really make a good deal with a bad person in that regard. So if, if, if I don't like the leadership of the company, that's a disqualifying risk. If I think there's any real material risk of the business or my investment going to zero, either because the industry is going to change too quickly, some competitive issue is going to swamp the boat, a bad capital structure, any of that kind of stuff, that's, again, it's getting almost impossible. Um, I, and I would say, you know, I've gotten even more intolerant of incentives that are misaligned. So if I see some sort of crazy incentive structure where it just doesn't make any sense, you know, if the rest of the business is wonderful and everything else lines up, if that one thing is out of whack, it's just is so powerful. I just, it's, it's really hard for me to get over. And, and again, I, I, it's not the kind of thing you can easily A, B test and, and figure out what works. So it's, but I do think the data would generally support all these things that as enticing as they are, to your point, they can look awfully cheap. It just rarely proves to be worth it. 
Yeah, I would say generally, um, I don't usually invest in the highest growth companies. I'm more of a traditional value investor. So for the businesses that I look at, they don't, they're not constantly under the gun to deliver, you know, double digit 20, 30% growth. So looking at, you know, things like um, accounts receivable and, and those kinds of things is not as important generally in the companies I look at. So, um, you know, kind of some of those uh, yellow or red flags that a short seller might look for or, or somebody who really depends on a company to deliver a really big number. Uh, that's not generally um, where I'll, um, you know, look uh, very much. Um, I think for me, you know, management is a huge, huge factor. And there can be yellow flags, there can be red flags, um, or it can be really positive. I mean, you know, just to mention a controversial example, since we've talked about Twitter recently, Jack Dorsey, I actually trust that guy. You know, people say he um, isn't doing enough or he uh, isn't focused on monetization or is stretched thin or so forth. I don't think he's lying to the shareholders I don't think he's trying to juice anything. And so I feel like you can actually take what he says and, and, and run with it. And, you know, I'll contrast that with Mark Zuckerberg, where I'm not so sure. You know, I think the, the recent um, congressional hearing where they asked, is social media addictive? You know, Zuckerberg gave his PR speech. He's not sure. And some uh, studies show this and that. You know, it's kind of like the tobacco companies talking about whether tobacco was addictive. And Jack Dorsey said, yeah, yeah, there's definitely addictive aspects to this. And um, I think that's what you want in a CEO is just to to be honest with the bad, the bad stuff. Um, Another kind of yellow flag for me is um, if I'm looking at a small cap or a micro cap company and, um, you know, the, the management is touting how cheap the stock is and they're going out and doing presentations all the time. And yet the insiders have super low ownership in a, you know, sub 100 million company, you as an insider own, you know, 50,000 worth of stock and you're telling me how it's the best investment ever, it just doesn't compute. So that to me is definitely a, a yellow flag um, or unfair or excessive compensation where I feel like, you know, the comp just doesn't reflect uh, the reality of the size of the business or the performance of the management. You know, one other kind of word I'll throw out um, is stakeholders. It's great if you're a well-to-do company and you're talking about serving the stakeholders. Actually, Sean Stannard Stockton of Ensemble Capital Management wrote a great article about how, why stakeholder-oriented companies do very well. Now, if you flip that and you're talking about a dis distressed equity, in my experience, the minute they no longer talk shareholders and they start talking stakeholders forget it, you know, <laughs> just sell and move on because that means shareholders are going to get screwed by some kind of a, a recapitalization. Um, and then one other um, kind of thing is a lot of investors have gone along with companies that either screw their customers, 
screw their suppliers, screw the regulators, what have you. And, you know, the investor says, wow, they're so smart. They're generating all these returns um, while doing that. And you kind of uh, have a blind eye to that. You know, maybe Valiant was an example in in certain respects. Um, I don't know all the details there, but uh, it, it rings a bell. And I just feel like when companies do that, eventually they're going to screw the shareholders. Because at the end of the day, management are agents. And if they can benefit at the expense of principles, they will. Uh, so those are just a few from uh, my side. Yeah, I think those are really good from both of you. And I wanted to, like, I feel like I've observed something that is in common, a common trait with all of these that starts on a different dimension. Um, I think every one of us has this willingness and, and is totally in a state of Zen about missing things that just don't sit or fit right. Like we will not feel bad missing out on something that really works if it doesn't check the boxes. Um, so I think that's a really important starting point. Like you don't have to force it. You don't have to make sure it works if you know any of these kind of disqualifying factors show up. Um, we just want to don't want to be there. It's really funny uh, the point John you made about like the semantics of the word stakeholder. And I was trying not to laugh too hard about this idea that if if you hear it in a distressed situation, run away. But the the second point you made about it is something that's so true to me, and it, it's what really got me thinking about like this this uh, having no FOMO. What, one of the biggest mistakes I. I made was not appreciating enough, like in a marketplace, uh, how the supply side feels about the marketplace. But then at the same time, I've also, you know, like with with an investment that could have been really good that I never took, never got warmed up because of how they treated their suppliers and their vendors and, you know, always squeezing them with a wrench. And I, I feel like it's just the kind of thing you have to be comfortable with at the end of the day. So um, yeah, no FOMO, no FOMO underlies it all. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. I think, um, you know, it's kind of that there are no called strikes, right? You don't, you just have to make sure that the stuff you do invest in does well. You know, it doesn't matter what everything else, what happens with the, the rest of the stock market. But it's an interesting way too to tie back the, the stuff we were talking about earlier with you know, the fear of missing out and, and board level knowledge because, and again, I'm really hesitant to use any specific companies and call out any individuals because with you know in complete humility and honesty we all make mistakes and lord knows i've made plenty of my own mistakes so i just want you know wells fargo was actually made money in wells fargo so it wasn't even that great of a mistake but uh, you know I'm, i'm calling it out because i think it's just such an amazing case of a company that had something going wrong and you know a lot of us just kind of ignored it for too long and most of us almost all of us right just kind of ignored it for too long. And John, you mentioned Valiant, which to me is maybe the most interesting of all, because there you had quite possibly the greatest concentration of brilliant investors and investors that most of us, at least I certainly admire and have great track records and good incentives and good intentions and great LPs and everything you'd want from a fund manager. And they all kind of got roped in to Valiant and they all got torched by it. And there again, I just think if you had been taking the business first approach and the board level 
you know, kind of criteria for knowledge base, you know, it didn't take much to figure out that there was some really rotten stuff going on there, both in terms of the business itself and what some of the people were doing internally. Again, I never owned it. I never shorted it, but it just, you know, I think the psychological narrative of this company's doing something really interesting and, and there's some great smart people involved and they have great pedigrees. And then once the the FOMO factor kicked in of all these other brilliant investors that were making three and five and 10 and 20 times their money in this thing. It just sort of took on a life of its own. And it's just stunning to watch because again, they were all brilliant people and it just went very poorly. Yeah. And my point there is not just that they didn't have the board level knowledge. Actually, some of the investors did. Well, some have, of them did. Yeah. You know, some of them were <laughs> yeah. super close to the business yeah. and they actually bought into it. They even advised yeah. the company how to maximize all value, quote unquote. Right. Um, and, and that's part of my point is just if you're that willing to turn a blind eye to wrongdoing just to make a buck it's going to come to bite you later on. And, you know, I'm not some ESG investor. I don't care about those categories at all. But if you will, my own way of designing my ESG approach is to just not invest in those kinds of companies where I feel like it's obvious that their business is built on screwing somebody. Right. Yeah, that's just it. And that's where I think, you know, again, I, I don't think pure rules-based, pure checklist-based, pure algorithmic decision-making works all the time in the context that we're talking about. But I will say that it should take something like once a career kind of thing to override the decision that I know this company is screwing hospitals and that their you know, management team is, is engaged in some truly horrible behavior. And I'm going to overlook that and invest anyway. Right. I mean, it, it, it really just, you could save yourself. To, I mean, again, if you're, if the name of the game for you is avoiding mistakes, you're going to avoid a lot of mistakes. If you just say, Oh, you know, one of those red flags has been triggered and I'm just done right there. I'm just not going to move forward. Exactly. And Phil, like Wells Fargo is such an interesting example on so many levels, because I think it relates to the first part of our, uh, of this podcast as well. I think there were a lot of investors in there who were, you know, the extent of their thought was Buffett endorsed this bank, owns a lot of it, therefore it's safe and I'm going to be in it. Um, And I don't think there are the same kinds of uh, critical questions being asked when that's the the, uh, kind of nascency of your thesis. And then, you know, when you think about a bank, like I kept looking at Wells Fargo, I was like, should I like this? I came into this year with a, a decent size holding in banks and financials in general. Um, and, you know, I would think a lot about Wells Fargo. Should I shift my JP to Wells? And, you know, is it, is, is the situation right or is it not? Like at the end of the day, what it shook out and still shakes out to me is a bank's most critical asset is their trust. It's not nothing else. None of the other stuff you see on the balance sheet. It's it's trust, and if you've forsaken your clients, your customers' trust, um, it's really hard to build that back up. Um, and that's exactly what Wells did. So I had a really hard time, and, and and would really struggle with that. But I mean, I guess my point is like this sort of stuff. Uh, you can't necessarily screen for it in the numbers. 
you have to think about it and you have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And uh, you have to make your thoughts your own. Can't outsource that. Because because when when Buffett starts selling, you won't know until he sold a lot of it and the 13F comes out several months later. Um, so the, the, it's really hard. Your conviction can't be outsourced. Yeah, right. And, and look at what, you know, to, to finish off the Wells Fargo discussion, I mean, I the mistake I made, I think, was that for a couple of years, and I recognize it relatively early compared to others, I guess, but it didn't really do that much for me, I guess. But anyway, the point would be that I assumed early on that because this wasn't making any money for the company, like the, the opening empty accounts, fake accounts, and, and because it was relatively limited in scope in terms of the number of people that were involved with it, that you shouldn't paint too broad a brush and that this is a company that's big, it's been around for a long time, it's got thousands, tens of thousands of truly great people working there, so why throw the baby out with the bathwater? And I think whether it's Wells or Solomon or you know, previous iteration, Solomon Brothers, or you know now something like Valiant or whatever, uh, it's just so hard to overcome that sort of cultural rot in anything that you know. I just question whether it's ever worth my time to look past that once I find any evidence of it. You know, I think that's it's pretty much a disqualification. Yeah, I I'm with you there. And you know, for what it's worth in Wells, like at this point, I I don't feel like Buffett's selling because of the cultural stuff. I mean, if I had a guess, and I'm not really nearly I'm I'm not good at reading these tea leaves, uh wouldn't ever claim to be. There was a uh Charlie Munger statement about how he thought that Charlie Scharf wasn't fully committed to the job and was half checked out uh because he chose to stay in New York and not move out west. And I feel like that could have something to do with it, whether that's fair or not uh, about Scharf as the CEO. There does seem to be some sort of disconnect there. Um, so, so maybe it's not just about that. And you know, when you have a seller like that, it puts a lot of pressure on the stock and everyone who is riding the coattails also has to sell. So maybe it's an interesting opportunity in terms of shareholder turnover, but I, I don't know. It's, it, it's too hard for me. Uh, but just trying to like spitball here and think this through. Yeah, and it could. I mean, like you said, price does matter. And so at some price, there's there's a level that could make sense there. It's just with so many other factors to consider and, and trying to make valuation kind of the last piece of the puzzle and not the first. It just makes it tough for me. And again, I don't have any insight either as to why someone else buys or sells. You know, I'll, I'll try to figure it out to a very limited extent, but it just gets tough. And so I think once you have these once you know something for sure, we can all speculate why someone would would buy or sell at this point. But once you have some facts on the ground as to what's actually going on in the company, you get some of these bright line tests back to the original question you you got. Um, you know, once these red flags start flapping, it's tough. Yeah, that's that's what it's all about. You have to put yourself in position to have conviction, and so anything anything that gets in the way of that, you just got to run the other way. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement. Um, I guess we can uh, call it the day on that note, uh, unless you guys have anything else you want to add. Um, I'll just uh, wish everyone listening a happy and safe Thanksgiving next week. We're going to see what we'll actually do in terms of an episode because uh, it is a time to spend with family. Uh, so uh, stay tuned for 
whether we have an episode, what it looks like, and, and so forth. But uh, this was a great discussion. Uh, also, Mr. Chris, looking forward to having him with us again uh, soon. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.